Open your Bibles, if you have them, to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew 22 is where we'll be this morning. Matthew 22, starting in verse 23. We'll go all the way to verse 33. Matthew 22, 23 to 33 is where we'll be this morning. You know, there are occasions where we get a glimpse of people that change everything around them. Uh, As an example of this, when I grew up, I grew up watching Michael Jordan on TV. The greatest basketball player that has ever lived. Don't bring in this LeBron James stuff, all right? I I will shut this puppy down, okay? Michael Jordan is the greatest basketball player that has ever lived. There was an era of basketball where it was dominated by these big men, and I won't bore you with the details, but everybody thought, well, you had to have a big guy to dominate the NBA, and then Michael Jordan came in, and he proved, no, you just need Michael Jordan. That's what you need. Tiger Woods, lucky to be alive this week. I was reminded this week, Tiger Woods changed the game of golf. Greatest golfer that's ever lived, I think. I didn't watch Jack Nicholas play, but I still think Tiger Woods probably the greatest golfer that's ever lived. After he came into the association, golfers started lifting weights and becoming more muscular and trying to hit the ball much further because this phenom was on the course winning. Steve Jobs changed forever the way we interact with phones and devices, just changed the way we interact with each other. Some may argue for the worse, and probably true, but (laughs) nevertheless changed everything about the world around him. This morning in our passage, Jesus is going to receive a second question from the religious leaders of the day, and this time it's from the Sadducees. And the Sadducees are going to find out that Jesus' answer to their question, to their challenge, really changes everything about the way we even think about our lives. Let's look at our passage this morning in Matthew chapter 22, verses 23 to 33. The same day, Sadducees came to him, who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So to the second and third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and and, and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but but, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we've read your word, I pray that you would speak to us in place of me. Speak through me, use me as merely a vessel, a conduit of your word. And I pray that we would, with open ears, open eyes, and open hearts, see what is in the text, hear it with our own ears, and obey it with our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is this final section of Matthew. We look back all the way to the beginning of chapter 19, where, this, where really this whole section began. And as, as a, on the whole, it has progressively been one non-stop battle with the religious leaders, between the religious leaders and Jesus. But as we go, the battle continues to progressively get more and more personal. You remember just four weeks ago, Jesus started this series. For us, it was four weeks ago. He started this series of parables. He gave three parables, and they were directed right at the religious leaders of the day. The first parable, he tells them that the sinners and the tax collectors are going into the kingdom ahead of them. 
And then in the second parable, he tells them that they're going to be judged for their treatment of him as the Messiah. They've rejected him. They've killed the Son of God. They're going to take him outside the city and kill him. And before that, they're going to receive judgment. And then finally, he tells them in the last parable, hey, guess what? You're not even invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. So not only are those getting in ahead of you, but in fact, you're not even getting in. You're going to be rejected, for many are called, but few are chosen. So in response to these very critical parables that Jesus has given to them, and it even tells us, Matthew even tells us, they perceived that Jesus was talking about them. They were picking up what he was laying down. They were smelling what he was stepping in, right? And they realized, okay, he's talking about us. He's criticizing us. And so the Pharisees and the religious leaders go from being on the defensive to being on the offensive. The problem, as we discovered last week and some and a couple of weeks ago even, is that Jesus is pretty popular with the crowd. It seems like the crowd that's around him is mostly Galilean. They're mostly from the area where Jesus grew up and have probably been following him for some time, and so it's quite natural that they would identify with him, that they would follow him. We've seen this guy walk on water. You can't convince us that he's not the Messiah. So last week we saw the Pharisees and the Herodians came after him, and they take a, a swing at him. They lay a, a pretty, really a pretty clever trap for Jesus. But they decide to turn this, basically, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they decide to turn this into a Thanksgiving dinner. You know, there's two things you're not supposed to talk about at Thanksgiving dinner, religion and politics. So the Pharisees and the Herodians bring up the topic of politics. Tell us what you think about paying taxes to the Roman government, right? Awkward question. No matter how he answers that question, he's going to have people on either side of the political aisle that are going to turn against him, they think. But Jesus' response to them really disappoints them, and it really astonishes the crowd because he doesn't give them what, he, what they want. In fact, he, he, he reforms the question altogether, and he tells them that the serving of God and paying taxes to the government are not mutually exclusive. You can actually do them together. And submitting to the government in this case, whom God has put over you, is in a way serving the kingdom of God and serving the God behind the government. Well, this morning, they took care of the politics. This morning, the Sadducees are going to shift the conversation to religion. Instead of trapping him or trying to uh, 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 trap him in the tax question, they're going to pose a hot-button religious topic. What about the resurrection from the dead? The hope, it seems, for the Sadducees here is to demonstrate that this man that's standing in front of them, that the people hold to be a prophet, has the knowledge of a peasant carpenter. And if they can demonstrate for the people that this isn't some austere religious scholar, this is a peasant carpenter, if they can demonstrate that for the people, then the people won't hold him to be a prophet anymore. They'll step away and go, oh yeah, the guy we followed is not worth following. And so we're, we're going to first, in this passage, look at the question that's posed to Jesus, and then we're going to look at Jesus' response and what that means for us. So let's look at the question. It starts in verse 23. Matthew tells us the same day, Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So to the second and the third, down to the seventh, after them all, the woman died in the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be, for they all had her. So last week we saw the interns of the Pharisees and the Herodians had their, their swing at Jesus, and it didn't work. And so what's, the, what's left? We send in the Sadducees, all right, to, to do the work for us. All right? So first, I want you to see there's obviously two levels to their question going on here. There's... there's what Matthew clues us into, and then there's the question. The first layer is that they are quite obviously mocking him. You can see that 
in what Matthew tells us. He tells us that the Sadducees say there is no resurrection from the dead. Now stop me if you heard this. The Sadducees are sad, you see, right? Okay, yeah, this is a well-worn path at this point. But it does bear repeating that they don't hold to the resurrection of the dead of any kind. They believe that both the body and the soul, once you died, were dead. There was no permanence to the soul. Another huge piece to this whole puzzle, especially for this week, as I mentioned last week, is that the Sadducees really only held the first five books of the Bible. We call it the Torah, or the books of the law, the books of Moses. They only held that those first five books were authoritative. That was the only thing that we should really read and receive absolute authority from. This is the only thing that God ordained to be Scripture and to govern us, are these first five books of the law. It was only the law of Moses that was to be considered what we might call the Bible, right? So when they come to Jesus asking this question, Matthew wants us to see this as a derisive question. This is meant to be a mocking question. They're not taking this seriously. They're not asking out of genuine curiosity. They're asking to ridicule Him because they find the premise of the resurrection of the dead to be preposterous on His face. That's ridiculous that you would believe in the resurrection of the dead. So then, why would they be asking Jesus this question? It's to demonstrate for their audience that Jesus is ill-equipped for the religious debate that He is surrounded with. See, He's just a peasant carpenter. He doesn't know what we Sadducees know. If you were to go to the Bible to defend for your friends the resurrection of the dead, where would you go? Now, most people would go probably to 1 Corinthians 15. That would be a good place to go. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul lays out the entire argument of the resurrection from the dead. You might go to the Gospels where we see Jesus rising from the dead. You might do both. Of course, these are Jews, and so they would hold to, at the very most, the Old Testament, what we would say is the 39 books of the Old Testament. So they might go to Isaiah, where he speaks of life to come. Or you might even better go to Daniel 12, 2, which says this, And many of those who, were, who sleep in the dust of the earth shall wake, some to everlasting life, and some and, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. That's a pretty compelling verse right there for proof of the fact that the Bible teaches the resurrection from the dead. But pretty much no one goes to the Torah. Almost no one goes to the first five books of the Bible to defend the resurrection from the dead. And, and the Sadducees believe that the Torah is the only thing that's authoritative. So you go to the book of Daniel... You go to the New Testament, which hasn't been written at this time, but you go to any of those, and they're going to discount it immediately. So it seems what they're waiting on is for Jesus, who probably comes from some sort of pharisaical background, they think, to rely on the rest of the Old Testament, to throw in Daniel or to throw in Isaiah, to prove that this means that the dead will be raised. And then they're going to go full Sadducee on him and just lay waste to him right there and prove he's a peasant carpenter who's ill-equipped for this debate. And so this question is meant to embarrass him in front of everybody. That's the first layer. But there's a second layer to the question, and that is, it's an actual question. And it's got a complex scenario that, who knows, could have actually happened. It seems pretty preposterous, they say, there were seven brothers among us. Maybe this is a true story, I doubt it, but, but nevertheless, they're posing a hypothetical, let's say, scenario for him that could happen. In Jewish law, if a widow were to die, having, or a, a, a widow were to have her, her husband die, having no children, then the closest brother or relative was to marry that widow and raise up a male offspring in the name of the deceased brother or closest relative. Now, this was designed as a mercy to the widow. 
I want you to think about this for just a second. It's a mercy to the widow. First, she would have someone to take care of her in old age. First, you know, physically, but also financially. There's a male heir who can take care of her physical needs, but also can provide for her financially. Honor your father and mother, right? If the deceased husband was dead, he'd be able to care for the widow. And then she would be able to leave the estate to someone when she passed. So, this was a mercy to the widow. It was giving her something that she could actually have to take care of. This is largely what's going on in the book of Ruth. If you remember the book of Ruth, Boaz takes on Ruth. This is largely what's going on in that book. And that happens to be Jesus' great, 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 great parents. Okay? So, he's well aware of this scenario. So, the scenario that they lay out, sees this widow having no children and is marrying brother after brother through the seventh, and still she has no offspring. You have to wonder how many brothers she got in before the brothers started to think, she's killing these people. She's putting cyanide in my breakfast cereal. This is the first cereal killer. No, I'm just teasing. Um, <laughs> so the seventh brother trepidatiously betrothes this woman, eating only takeout, maybe. But still, he gives up the ghost, and lastly then the woman dies, leaving no children. And so then the question that the Sadducees pose, whose wife will she be in this totally ridiculous, completely preposterous, unscriptural resurrection from the dead? As we've seen, the question is not so much whose wife will she be, as much as it is, can you defend the resurrection from Scripture? That's really the question the Sadducees are posing to. Can you defend the resurrection from Scripture? Now look at Jesus' response. Verse 29. Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Notice first that Jesus begins the response by saying, you are wrong. Well, technically they asked a question, didn't they? They didn't make a statement. They asked a question. And he begins by saying, you are wrong. The implication is that in your question, you're making an assertion about the resurrection. Namely, that it's a ridiculous notion that doesn't have any biblical support. And to that, Sadducees, you are wrong. Not only that, but Jesus knows what they represent as Sadducees. You're wrong, he says. But he follows with what might be the most inflammatory of all possible statements that he could make to the Sadducees in front of a large crowd. And that is, you don't know the Scriptures. Or the power of God. Ouch. In front of everyone, he just outs them as complete liberals who are lunatics, who don't know the Scriptures, or the power of God. Remember what I said last week, that the Sadducees are this rich aristocracy of the day. That means the priests, the high priest, the Sanhedrin, which would be like the Supreme Court of the United States, essentially, of the, uh, of the Jews there, um, basically uh, were all Sadducees. Almost all of them were Sadducees. And so if Rome had packed up and had left the land, that day, the Sadducees would be in charge. And this would be the governing idea of the land. And Jesus has the gall to tell them, you don't even read your Bible, do you? The Sadducees had a plan. This is how we're going to attack him. But as the great philosopher Mike Tyson once said, everyone has a plan until he gets hit in the mouth. Right? So Jesus comes out swinging. You don't know the Scriptures, nor the power of God. 
But just like the Sadducees have two levels to their question, one is mocking and one is an actual question, Jesus has two responses. The first actually answers their question, and then we'll get to the second in a second where he ridicules the Sadducees. His answer to the question is in verse 30, in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So let's understand what Jesus is saying here and what he's not saying. He's not saying that in the resurrection, you become angels. You understand that? Nobody's getting their wings, all right? I hate to burst a bubble there. Uh, It's a wonderful life bubble, all right? Nobody's getting their wings. You're not going to be given that. He's not saying we become angels. He's saying you and I are humans. We have always been humans. We always will be humans. Even in the resurrection, what he's saying is that as it pertains to marriage, in particular to marriage, we will become like angels in that respect only, in that just as angels aren't married, we also won't be married. Now, i got to confess to you, there is a twinge to that that when I think about it, has a, a slightly bitter taste that it leaves in my mouth been married for almost 15 years. I know many of you have been married a lot longer than I have. But it, it's difficult for me to think of a day when I won't be Andrea's husband. It, it's difficult for me to think about a day when I won't be called daddy by three kids. It, it's hard to think about that day when that happens. And when I start to think about that, there's this feeling just even slightly of a little bit of bitterness that, that comes up of me. And then, and then I, I have to think like, wait, wait a minute, what am I thinking about here? Well, this is supposed to be e- eternal life. This is supposed to be life in heaven with Jesus. This is supposed to be life with brothers and sisters aplenty, with millions and billions and trillions, more than anybody can count, gathered around the throne and is there, am I really feeling a little bit of bitterness about that? Far be it for me to feel bitter. And then I start feeling bad because I felt bitter about it. But I think part of that feeling is because our notions about marriage and life after death are incredibly bland. We have this idea that's kind of taken over the church in large part about marriage and, and what life after death actually looks like is just really boring and bland. It's not at all scriptural. As far as marriage goes, our lives of matrimony, our lives together as a, as a picture of a much bigger reality, our life in marriage is a picture of a much greater reality. Think about this for just a second. My children, my neighbors, my friends, my family, the rest of the world should see in our marriage a wife that submits to her husband as as the church submits to Christ. And they should see a husband who loves his wife and would give anything up for her also as Christ did for the church. Our lives together in matrimony are a picture of that. It's a parable of that reality. That's what, we're, that's what our purpose is in marriage. We often don't think about that on a daily basis, but that is the reality of what we should be living for in our marriage. So in this way, our marriage is a, depicture, is a, is a depiction of a greater gospel reality. Paul says in Ephesians 5, 31 to 32, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. Mystery of marriage. It's profound, he says. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. That's the picture. Anything short of that is a bland, boring marriage. That 
is the reality that we're to be living for in marriage. So, as the husband, I don't want to love my wife simply because she's pretty or because we get along. I want to love her as my own body. Why? So that in doing that, in loving her as my own body, I become more like Christ. Who loved the church and gave himself up for her. So as I love my wife and I lay down my life for her, I sacrifice her for her. Not, not, the, not sacrifice. Sacrifice for her. I become more like Christ in that action. And that's what I want to do since my role in the relationship is to emulate Christ's love for the church. So I become more like Christ. Wives shouldn't submit to their husbands merely because they're the man of the house, so to speak. Submission in marriage is the way God conforms wives into the image of Christ. I know this isn't a sermon on marriage per se. Follow me, follow me for just a minute, if I may. Both of these commands by Paul in Ephesians 5, are a reversal of the fall. You realize that? Both of the commands that he's giving are a reversal of the fall. Okay? Genesis 3.16 says this. This is punishment God is handing down by virtue of their sin. He says this. That he's telling Eve this. He's talking to Eve. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Sound like a happy marriage? Sounds like a Dr. Phil episode. Wives, submitting to your husbands is making your desires line up with your husbands. Husbands, loving your wives as Christ loved the church is refusing, Genesis 3.16 says, to rule over her. Submitting to your husband is causing not your will to be contrary to his, but yours to line up with his. Husbands refusing to rule over her, but instead serving her and dying for her, is also reversing Genesis 3.16. That's Paul's point there. You're both submitting to the authority, not of each other, but of the new Adam Christ. You're part of the new creation, and you're living as such in your marriage. You're saying the rules of the fall in Genesis 3.16 don't apply to us because we fall under the reign of the new Adam, Christ, and we submit to his rule and his reign, and in his rule and his reign, our marriage is depicting a greater reality. So in other words, Jesus changed everything about the way we think about our marriage. We don't think about it the same way we, should, we would prior to Christ. Our marriage actually has a meaning. It has a purpose. It's not bland, and it doesn't just terminate on death. It actually has a purpose of magnifying the gospel to the world. But many of our marriages are trapped in meaninglessness. Many men in our churches are spiritually immature. They have no idea how to be the spiritual leaders in their homes. All spiritual conversations in those homes, all Bible reading, all prayer, all family worship, if it ever happens, is directed by the wives and the mothers and spiritually led by them, statistically, more women will come to church and drag their families to church, kicking and screaming in some regard, than dads will. How many Easter and Christmas and Mother's Day do you see many more people packed into churches? Why do they do that? They don't say it's because my dad wanted me to be here. They often don't really come on Father's Day. It's Mother's Day. What does mom want for Mother's Day? Well, I want you all to go to church. 
So it's led by the wives in the family. Many men are secretly addicted to pornography without telling their wives, without telling their families, without thinking there's no way out, no way of escaping. They're just constantly trapped in that. They're bored in church if they even come at all. And the only way they know how to quote-unquote lead their families is either through dominance or through acquiescence. It's either, I wear the pants in this family, or it's, yes dear, happy wife, happy life. In which case, marriage is the greatest pleasure they will ever experience. And they can't imagine anything beyond that. They can't imagine their marriage actually having any greater reality or any greater meaning, in which case it terminates at death, and they can't imagine any pleasure beyond that. So for us, if we're trapped in that blandness of marriage, it has a twinge of bitterness to it. But it's not just men. For many women in the church, the word submit has become a curse word. It's a product of a bygone era. Well, that was back in the day when women were supposed to stay home and cook and clean and be quiet and submit. That's a curse word. That's a product of the Stone Age. And so for many women today, and this is in the church, I'm not even talking about the culture. Many women in the church, they're faced with what they think is really one of two options. Either do this submission thing and live in the Stone Age, or refuse submission and quote-unquote be free. And live with your life contrary to that of your husband's. Does that sound like freedom? Or does that sound like the fall? I'm afraid that for many of us, the balance that we found in our marriages is a product of the fall. And yet, it's the greatest pleasure in this fallen world we think we could ever have. Ask yourself, is your spouse becoming more like Christ because of the role that you are playing in your marriage? If not, why not? Instead, just consider for a moment what it would be like if our marriages actually looked like the role Jesus set for them to begin with. The role God intended for marriage. Imagine if our marriages looked like that for just a second. The husband loved his wife to the point that he gave up everything for her. He was always looking to build her up. He was always looking to care for her needs, put her needs ahead of his own to the point of even sacrificial death if necessary. Like Christ loved the church. And imagine if the wife followed the lead of her husband through support and love and honor as Christ does the church. Imagine what would happen if Christ's love for the church became a model for our marriages. And we tried in our marriages to emulate that picture for the rest of the world, for our kids, for everyone watching. If that happened and that became the model, then the husband is striving to become more like Christ. And not only is he striving to become more like Christ, in doing so, he's striving to help his wife become more like Christ. And the, the woman is striving to become like Christ, and she is striving to help her husband become more like Christ. In which case, when Christ actually returns, and the marriage is dissolved, then the wife finally has what she has always wanted for her husband. And the husband has what he has always wanted for his wife, to have them living in perfect harmony with Christ as their master. I can't wait to see the look on my wife's face when she becomes the woman that she has always wanted to be. And I know she can't wait until that happens to me. Until I become the man that I've always wanted to be. 
so Jesus changes everything about our marriages. He changes everything about our marriage. So the marriage that is dissolved shouldn't bring a twinge of bitterness to us because the marriage has finally reached its goal. That's its point, is to be there in perfect union with Christ. And if it's reached his goal, then that should be the epitome of happiness. It's only a bad thing if we consider a face-to-face relationship with Jesus to not be the goal of our marriage. But if it is the goal, then it's the pinnacle of happiness. So after explaining to them how marriage and the resurrection works, Jesus then addresses the first part of the question, the part that's supposed to mock him a little bit. And so, naturally, Jesus does it by telling them they don't know how to read their Bibles again. He says that it's stated in the Bible, he says, God is the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. Notice, not was, God is Meaning that Abraham is still alive and he's still worshiping Yahweh, who is still God. Remember just a few chapters ago, back in 17, at the transfiguration, we saw Moses and Elijah standing there with Jesus. And they're recognized as such. And so they are still alive and they're still worshiping the Lord. So I guess he's telling them not only that they don't understand their Bibles, they also don't have grammar works. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But I want you to notice the most important part of his argument. The passage that he cites here, he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Jacob, is from Exodus 3.6. In other words, it's an argument for the resurrection, and it's nestled neatly into the first five books of the Old Testament. The reason the Sadducees do not believe in the resurrection is because they don't believe the first five books of the Bible teach the resurrection. And so Jesus comes in and says, peasant carpenter, huh? Don't know my Bible, huh? Let's see. Do you not know how to read? It's right there. Do you not understand grammar? Do you not understand how it works? But do you understand what Jesus is saying here? First of all, he's just thrown out the Sadducees' teaching altogether. They are completely discredited as teachers before the Jews. Right there. Look at the Bible. It says it right here. Therefore, you have no room to speak. Their whole claim to authority is thrown out the window. But what he affirms is that death is not the end. And not only is death not the end, heaven isn't the end either. He's affirming a resurrection from the dead. What Jesus is promising is not just eternal life, but eternal life in a body. Think about that for just one second. Eternal life in a body. In these bodies. Now, I'm always amazed every time we start talking about the resurrection of the dead, how many Christians look at me like I've got three heads. Because it sounds weird initially. But we need to understand what the Bible is teaching about eternal life. When we die, our souls go to be with the Lord. That's very clear in Scripture. Our bodies rot in the grave. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 51-53. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, At the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When Christ returns, that's what he mentions here as the last trumpet, the dead will be raised. Meaning that the bodies of dead people will rise from the grave. So assuming that all of us in this room are dead at that point, When Christ returns, our dead bodies, they are rot in the grave, they may be dead at the bottom of the sea, they may have burned to death, let's hope they're just buried in a coffin somewhere. All right. They will all be raised and transformed in the twinkling of an eye and reunited with our souls. The bodies will be transformed into imperishable bodies and will be fit 
for life eternal on a remade earth. That is the Christian picture of eternal life. But wait, there's more. What about those that aren't dead? Well, I'm glad you asked, because Paul addresses those too. Look in verse 51. If you leave that passage up on the screen, he says, We shall not all sleep, that is, die, but we shall all be changed. <coughs> Excuse me. So the living in Christ. <coughs> I'm going to grab a drink of water real quick. Thank you. <clears throat> all right. It's not the COVID. All right. I think I just need to make clear that <laughs> right now. Um, <clears throat> so the living in Christ, their bodies will also be changed in the twinkling of an eye. So if any of us are left when Christ returns and haven't died, our bodies will also be changed. And so eternity will be not a floaty place where we're hovering around like ghosts, chanting like monks around the throne of God, not at all. Our eternal dwelling will be a new earth where we will live bodily with Jesus really here face to face. Now, I know that sounds probably a little strange to some Christians. Especially if you're new to that idea or you've never heard that before at all, it will sound a little strange. And honestly, I would have thought it was strange too until about 2,000 years ago. Something happened that changed everything. There was this man called Jesus, and he died a real death. He was really dead. When they put him in the grave, he was dead, dead, dead. Like, poke him in the eyeball, he wouldn't have blinked dead. He was dead. How dead was he? He was dead, dead, dead. Was he alive? No, he was dead. They put him in the grave, and three days later, he got out of the grave on Sunday morning. He rose up from the dead. Read your Bibles. The stone is not rolled away to let Jesus out. The stone is rolled away to prove he's not there. So that means, how did he get out? We just walked out. The grave couldn't hold him anymore. So he's raised, and he's clearly different. Because he can walk through doors, and he walks out of the tomb. But... He's also the same because he's got the nail-scarred hands. And at some point, the disciples actually go, oh my goodness, it's Jesus. I recognize this man, right? So he's changed, and yet he's also the same. He wasn't a ghost, we know that. He could eat. He ate with his disciples. He ate fish. He could give them high fives, which is the epitome of reality. But he was also not hindered by anything in the world. He walks through the door, as it were, and appears to them in the room and eats with them. How does that work? I can't do that. Can you? No, so he's the same, but he's also very, very different. He's not hindered by anything in this world. He has experienced, and he's the first one to experience, what Paul describes here in 1 Corinthians 15. He was the first of many to come. Matthew's even going to tell us when he resurrected, other people resurrected too in the same way. We'll get to that later. So what I'm saying is, Jesus changes everything about the way we think about eternal life. He rose from the dead, and so will we, but do you understand what Jesus is offering to those who believe? Just as our marriages are supposed to push back against the fall... Jesus himself in the resurrection from the dead is reversing the curse of death that the fall brought. That's what's happening. Listen, if Jesus' body is in the grave, we're still in our sins. That's what Paul says. But if when we die, our bodies are still in the grave, death had a victory. That's why what he says is when, the, when Christ comes and we raise from the dead... Then death will be robbed of its victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? It can't happen anymore. Because once Christ returns, death will have to be opened up. The grave will have to be opened up. It has no claim on you or me because Christ died and paid the penalty for our sin. What right then does death have to claim a victory over our body? 
But if our bodies are still in the grave and there is no resurrection, death still has a victory. Sin has robbed us of that victory of life, as it were. But because Jesus has come and because of His death and resurrection, He has undone all of that for His people. So Jesus is declaring to the Sadducees right here in this passage and to the people listening that God's covenant with His people is an everlasting covenant. It's eternal. Death doesn't have an impact here. Death has no say here. The covenant that God has made with His people is everlasting. Don't you read your Bibles? Don't you know that it's everlasting? It's not stopped by death. No. Christian, the life that you live in this fallen world, listen to this, is merely an introduction to the book. It's just an introduction. This isn't the full story. This is merely, maybe even the preface. This is stuff you need to know before you look at the lives of these people in eternity worshiping around the throne, fellowshipping with one another in real, perfect fellowship, in real bodies. Before you look at that, you need to know what happened first. This is just the introduction. This is a blip on the radar. But here's the reason that that's good news. Some of us, maybe all of us, have deep scars left by this world. Really deep scars. Maybe it's marriages that fell apart. Maybe it's marriages that didn't happen. They can be really hurtful. You hear about marriage preached and you think, I don't have, I'm not married to someone and I, I feel ashamed of that or something. Or hurt by that. They're scars and they're deep. Perhaps it's the death of a loved one. Maybe the death of a spouse. Or myriad of other trials. What does this tell us? Well, this tells us that in Christ, God is in the process of turning all those scars into stories of His grace and His mercy to you throughout your life. What did the scars in Christ's hands become? What did they turn into? But a story, a picture for all his children of his grace and his mercy. They were left there in the resurrection. They weren't taken away. It's not something to be scrubbed out. It's a picture of his grace and his mercy. And you may not feel that right now. You may not know that right now. But one day you will know that. I love the song by Andrew Peterson. It's called After the Last Tear Falls. I'd recommend it to anybody who listen to it. After the Last Tear Falls, he talks about a, a day when there will be a final tear that falls from someone's, someone's eye. Right? That's kind of the premise of it. After the Last Tear Falls. The refrain in here says that we'll look back on all these tears as old tales. Stories of grace and of mercy. The other reason why I think this is really important is because it, it tells us what Jesus is reaffirming to us is that he surpasses the greatest pleasures that the world has to offer. Marriage, which to many is as good as it gets. That's it. That's as, that's as high as it ever goes. Jesus is saying, no, no, no. That too will terminate and it will end in something much, much better. So what does that tell us as Christians? That in submitting to Christ as King, we won't regret it. There's going to be a day where we go, yeah, it was all worth it. Every bit of suffering that we went through, this is worth it. It doesn't even compare with what's to be revealed to us. The highest pleasures and treasures that this world had to offer... It just does not compare to what I have here. But then what about to those who don't believe or who struggle day to day with thoughts of 
finding pleasure in this world, whether it be satisfaction through pornography or a myriad of other things that could be mentioned. I think the appeal of Isaiah 55.3, read it, tattoo it to the back of your eyelids if you have to, incline your ear and come to Him. Hear that your soul may live. Incline your ear to the Lord. Repent from sin. Confess it to the Lord. Own up to it. Turn to Him. You will find that the pleasures that He offers and the pleasures that are to come in the resurrection exceed the highest pleasures of this earth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, our prayer this morning is that you give us some semblance of what we would be missing were we not to be following you. Open up, Lord, the storehouses of heaven. Help us to see our lives as not temporal, but eternal. That we're not, as the secular world says, to leave a name for ourselves so that we might live on. But that we can live to the glory of Your name, not ours. Because we know that in You we live on. There is eternal life to come. This is a blip on the radar. This is the first little bit of the book that's yet to be written for us. And so I pray, Lord, that you give us just a snippet of that understanding. Open our hearts and our minds that we may grasp what's happening here in your kingdom. That we may understand how our lives fit into this whole picture of your salvation. And I realize there may be many people that don't understand what I'm talking about. Pray that you would give them eyes to see and ears to hear. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.